All right. Well, good evening again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Epistle of James, chapter 3? James 3. And, you know, once again, just to kind of put you guys in remembrance, the main theme of James' letter is to challenge Christians, and yes, primarily Jewish Christians, uh, but all Christians really, to challenge us to maturity and commitment. And in the first two chapters, he has presented us with some of the characteristics of mature Christians. Um, a mature Christian, first of all, embraces trials because they know that trials helps us to grow into the image of Christ. So a mature Christian embraces trials and is on guard against temptation because he knows that the devil is always lurking about trying to uh, trip us up, trying to take us out in some way, destroy our witness for Christ. So that was pretty much chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he goes on to talk about how a mature Christian demonstrates a heart of love and concern for the poor and for the disadvantaged and reaches out to help them. And now in chapter 3, he shares another important characteristic of a mature Christian. He or she has power over their tongue. Not that this applies to anybody here, because we all have power over our tongues. I know that, but um, just for we'll just throw it out there because that's where James is going with this. But apparently, the uh, folks that James was writing to were having problems controlling their tongues. Uh, he'd already warned them in chapter one, verse nineteen, to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Also, at the end of chapter 1, he talked about how that believers who don't bridle or control their own tongues are not really religious. They don't really know Jesus, really. We have to be careful because James and often the New Testament writers speak in um, generalities. There's always, uh, you know, exceptions to the rule. All right. John says in his first epistle, if a believer or a person doesn't love the brethren, doesn't love other Christians, they're not saved. Okay, well, for the most part, obviously, all of us love each other as Christians, but there's always somebody in the church, body of Christ, that honestly, if, when Jesus takes us to heaven right now, you're thinking, I won't mind if I'm on the other side of town from where they live. <laughs> of course, that's not going to be the case once we get to heaven. We're all going to love each other as God loves us. But, you know, so there are exceptions, okay? I mean, but for the most part, James is, is basically saying that, look, and this gets into um, something that he really brings out in chapter 3 about the tongue being and what comes out of our mouths really being a, a, a something that, that gives us a glimpse into our own heart. So we'll just hang on to that thought. Before we go get there, though, I just want to say this. The spoken word is one of the most powerful things God has created. Nothing has done more good and at the same time, more harm in the history of mankind than the spoken word. One author put it this way, he said, and I quote, The power of speech is one of the greatest powers God has given us. With the tongue, man can praise God, pray, preach the word, and lead the lost to Christ. What a privilege. But with the same tongue, we can tell lies that could ruin a man's reputation or break a person's heart. The ability to speak words is the ability to influence others and accomplish tremendous tasks, and yet we take this ability for granted, end quote. And might I add, often too lightly, we, we don't understand the power of our words, and therefore we're careless with them. 
So in chapter 3, verse 1, James begins by saying, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. In other words, if you're going to make teaching, which involves speaking, of course, your profession, okay? You're going to be a, a full-time speaker. Um, know this, the more you speak, the more you're inclined to say things that are wrong or hurtful, and therefore the more susceptible you become to the judgment of God for what comes out of your mouth. We see this spoken of in both the Old and New Testaments, this idea. In Proverbs 10:19, we read, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. In Matthew 12, verse 37, Jesus said, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And guys, there is no greater place where this is true than in the pulpit teaching God's Word. It's one thing to teach something innocuous like gardening, okay? I mean, you know, a subject that has no eternal impact on a person's life. It's another thing altogether, though, to teach spiritual truth from the Bible, which if you get it wrong, well... It can damn a person to hell forever. And I'm thinking of the Christian cults who think that they are representing God, who, are, who think that they're genuine Christians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Christian scientists. And there's other Christian cults that have gotten it wrong, although they'll tell you they're the only ones who got it right. Only our group knows the truth. Joseph Smith, Jr., founder of the Mormon Church. The truth was lost for 1,900 years until I came along. And God revealed to me through the angel Moroni, all this baloney about the golden plates of Nephi and all this stuff, right? Look, understand this, guys. James is not discouraging people whom God has called to be teachers of his word. He's not encouraging them not to obey that call. His point is to admonish them to be absolutely sure, listen, that they have been called by God to be teachers of his word. You know, just in my ministry, and I haven't been around that long, and I know this has been since the beginning of the church age, many, many people over the years, down through the centuries, have believed they have been called by God to teach God's Word. Of course, we have seen the fruit of many of their ministries and realized, no, they have not been called, but that didn't stop them. In their heart, they believed they had a call from God, and only they really understood the scriptures. In fact, the history of Israel was rife with false prophets and teachers. In the days of Jeremiah, the nation had become infested with false prophets that were going around claiming to be speaking on behalf of God. Turn to Jeremiah 23, just one chapter uh, in Jeremiah's book that talks about this. I'll just pull out a few verses from this chapter. You can read the whole thing on your own. It's quite telling about what was going on. Starts off Jeremiah 23, verse 1. What sorrow awaits the leaders of my people, the shepherds of my sheep? For they have destroyed and scattered the very ones they were expected to care for, says the Lord. Well, as you read the whole chapter, you realize how that happened, what, did, what they did to these people. They did not feed them faithfully on God's truth, but had gotten off into all kinds of... A lot of it was not just false doctrine, but idolatry. They, they got off into things because uh, they were corrupt and they were uh, 
uh, looking to make money. They were looking to benefit off the people. Ezekiel chapter 34, uh, God says these false teachers, you know, they don't care about the sheep. They're only using the sheep to feed themselves and to enrich themselves. And, and this is what was going on in Jeremiah's day as well. Verse 9. Jeremiah said, my heart is broken because of the false prophets, and my bones tremble. I stagger like a drunkard, like someone overcome by wine, because of the holy words the Lord has spoken against them. For the land is full of adultery, and it lies under a curse. The land itself is in mourning. Its wilderness pastures are dried up, for they all do evil and abuse what power they have. They're these leaders, these teachers. Um, they're just abusing God's people for their own gain. Verse 11, even the priests and prophets are ungodly, wicked men. I have seen their despicable acts right here in my own temple, says the Lord. Verse 14, but now I see that the prophets of Jerusalem are even worse. They commit adultery and love dishonesty. They encourage those who are doing evil so that no one turns away from their sins. These prophets are as wicked as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah once were. Verse 16, This is what the Lord of heaven's army, or the Lord of hosts, says to his people. Do not listen to these prophets when they prophesy to you, filling you with futile hopes. They are making up everything they say. They do not speak for the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise my word, Don't worry, the Lord says you will have peace. And to those who stubbornly follow their own desires, they say, no harm will come your way. And let me just say this about what's going on here. Because the prophets and priests, those who were spiritual leaders, those who were spokesmen for God, were not teaching the people God's word faithfully. They were basically tickling ears. They were telling the people what the people wanted to hear because that then uh, enriched their own ministry. All right, something we have today. Paul said in the last days you have people that wouldn't want to hear sound doctrine but would gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and would turn away from the truth, turn aside to fables. We see that in our day. It, it was nothing new back in Israel's time. The problem was because these men, these corrupt evil men, were telling the people what they wanted to hear, they were not challenging them with God's word, holding them accountable to live holy lives. Because of it, there was no accountability. There was no conscience that was being uh, uh, touched by, you know, God's word is living and powerful. If you preach it faithfully, it's going to touch hearts. It's going to convict. It's going gonna, it's gonna to show people that, look, this is what God says not to do. We need to stay away from this behavior. But when you remove that, and pastors and preachers and prophets and whatever you got going on back in Israel's time, when they're just telling people what they want to hear, well, then sin begins to proliferate. And that's what he is saying here. He said, I'm, I, I'm like a drunkard, uh, Jeremiah. Said, I'm, I, I can't believe what's going on. I'm, I'm staggering as I look at what's happening. Adultery is everywhere. Immorality is everywhere. Nobody's challenging it because everybody's, you know, the, these false teachers are just telling people what they want, just evil things. And because of it, and Jeremiah was one of the only prophets who was telling the people the truth. This poor guy was being abused by all the false prophets. The people hated him for the most part. They beat him up, threw him down wells. I mean, poor Jeremiah for teaching the truth or preaching the truth was just being uh, uh, brutalized, okay? And one of the things that God told Jeremiah to tell the people is because of their sins, you know, the time for repentance was over. 
Now the Babylonians were coming to take them captive. God said to Jeremiah, look, tell the people, if, if they don't resist this, it's my judgment. If they will go along with it, they'll be taken to Babylon, but they'll live. If they fight against this, they're going to die. So here's Jeremiah preaching this message. Well, all the other prophets who were false prophets and much of the people uh, believed that Jeremiah was working for the enemy. He was trying to demoralize God's people, telling them that God was going to judge his people. Don't, don't fight it. Just submit to it. And the people are going, he's, he's working for the enemy. So they beat him up. Again, throw him down in cisterns and everything else. Uh, and the false prophets are running around just like we read in verses 16 and 17 by saying, look, you're God's people. Don't listen to Jeremiah. Yeah, you're God's people. It's going to be peace, peace. God's with you. And God says to Jeremiah later on, these prophets, I didn't send them, but they ran. I didn't tell them to speak, but they spoke. They speak lies in my name, not from my mouth are they speaking, but they're speaking out of the imagination of their own hearts. They're put a, putting a band-aid on the people, telling them, peace, peace, when there is no peace, God said. Judgment's coming. Instead of telling them, get on your knees right now and repent, maybe God will be merciful, the false prophets are just feeding into this whole thing. You know, Jesus spoke out against false prophets and teachers throughout his earthly ministry. Warning his followers, listen to me, warning his followers that these people were extremely dangerous. Why? Because what they taught people, these false teachers and prophets in Jesus' day, what they were teaching people had attached to it, these teachings had attached to them, eternal consequences. Turn to Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 13. He said to his uh, disciples, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. Now, we know the narrow gate is Jesus. There's only one door, one way that leads to heaven that's through Jesus. Very narrow because there's no other way. And he's talking about himself, really. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Not because it's hidden. Not because God has hidden the truth. But because so many false prophets are out there redirecting people down the wrong path. And that's what he talks about. Verse 15, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. I don't know if there's any other thing Jesus warned said beware of uh, than he did false prophets. The word beware, obviously, it's a very strong word. Um, you know, you're out somewhere and you're walking around somewhere and you see a fence with a big white sign with the big red letters, beware. What is your initial reaction? Oh, let's check it out. Okay. Oh, what's this? This is interesting. Let me jump the fence and find out what's going on there. No, it's a, it's a get, stay away. Something dangerous inside here. You don't want to get in here, right? Jesus is saying, look, Stay away from false prophets. And you're, the only way you're going to know if they're false prophets is by what comes out of their mouth. Jesus said, look, my teachers, my sheep, my true prophets, they speak God's word faithfully. But these false prophets, they speak out of the imagination of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. Uh, stay away from them because their ministry can damn you. They're like spiritual pied pipers, spiritual traffic cops waving people down the broad way to hell all the while claiming to represent God in truth. P, 
Peter also warned us about these, and I'm just going to give you a couple. I mean, there's the New Testament is loaded with warnings about false teachers and prophets. Second uh, Peter two, Peter warned us. In Second Peter two, starting with verse one, he said, "But there were also false prophets in Israel." Well, that's true. We just talked about that in the Old Testament times, just as there will be false teachers among you. Peter said, talking to God's people in the New Testament, the church. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them, who redeemed them with his own blood, or at least his redemption is available, okay? Not that they've accepted it, not that they've embraced it, but it's, it's there for them if they want it. Um, they deny the master. In other words, they bring false doctrine about Jesus, that he's not really the creator of the world, second person of the Trinity. Uh, he's the brother of Lucifer, Mormons. Or the JWs, he is a created being, created by Jehovah God, uh, a mighty but lesser God than Jehovah God. These are false concepts of Jesus Christ. They deny the, the Lord, denying who he really is. Even denying the master who bought them, in this way they will bring sudden destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. Many will follow them all the way down the path to hell. But God is saying that their day's coming, uh, and I wouldn't want to be in their shoes in the day of judgment. Now, as, a, as we've already seen, guys, in our study of James, that towards the end of chapter 1, and then pretty much all the way through chapter 2, uh, James has been dealing with people in the church who profess to be Christians, but by their lack of love for others, you know, for the lack of love for the poor, widows, orphans, remember at the end of Chapter 1, he tells you, know, true religion is, is, all, is all about this. People who visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep themselves uh, unspotted from the world and so on. Um, he's been talking about these folks who claim to be Christians but have no heart for people. They, they don't really have any love for, for the poor, uh, orphans, widows, and so on. And, and the point we made when we studied this a couple weeks ago was, that when you receive Christ, the Bible says the Spirit of God comes inside and gives to you the nature of God, the heart of God. And so what God loves, we begin to love. What God hates, we start hating. God loves the poor. God has always had a heart for the poor. And always in the Old Testament has said that if you reach out and help the poor, I'll take notice of that. In fact, if you give to the poor, you actually lend to me, I'll take care, I'll pay you back. But those who have no heart for the poor and disadvantaged among us. James says, really, you know, they, they, they claim to be Christians, but they're showing themselves to be, you know, false Christians, not genuine disciples of Christ. Uh, in James chapter 2, verse 15, he, he talks about this. He said, if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which they need for the body, you don't give them any food, what, what kind of faith is that, all right? It's good for nothing, basically. Verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Any so-called faith in Christ uh, uh, that doesn't have a heart for the poor and disadvantaged, James says, you know, that's, that faith is dead. It's not real. Of course, we, we read what Paul said to Titus. In Titus chapter 1, verse 16, uh, you know, many in the church profess to know God, but in works or by their works, they deny him. And it's just simply, you know, People can talk to talk. Didn't James say earlier, it's not one who hears the word that's right with God, but one who actually goes out and then lives the word, does the word. 
uh, you can hear the word, come to church, and then leave here and do nothing about it. Well, you're deceiving yourself if you think your faith is genuine because you cannot have the Spirit of God inside of you and be the same person. I mean, we can, we can all attest to that, right? I mean, I don't know what you were like before you got saved, but I know one thing. I know what you were like right now. Some of our testimonies are more dramatic than others, that's true, but we've all been changed. We, we all have a different way of looking at life, different values now, a different worldview even. That's because the Spirit of God lives in our heart, right? And James is just saying that, look, anyone who professes to know God but has no fruit, uh, no good works of helping and loving people, not that the works save us, but they just testify that we are genuinely saved. Now, I believe, guys, as we have looked at that, I believe as we enter into chapter 3, James is, in a way, continuing that same thought by saying uh, that what comes out of a person's mouth, well, it reveals what's in their heart and indicates that the Spirit of God is really in their heart. But look, I don't want to just limit this to uh, phony Christians because the church is full of them, the terrors. Um, these things also you know, apply to us. You know, I mean, um, yeah, there are religious phonies in the church and a lot of stuff comes out of their mouths and we know that, you know, that that's not godly and so on. But as God's true people, we also need to look at what's coming out of our mouths because our words will reveal the condition of our hearts as well. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 45. He said, for out of the, the abundance of the heart, what? A person speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The Greek word for abundance is a word that means filled with to the point of overflowing. In other words, whatever is filled a person's heart. I mean, whatever dominates a person's heart. Remember what Jesus said, wherever uh, your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever a person really values, whatever they are drawn to and really um, focus on primarily, that's what's going to fill their heart. And uh, we don't know what's in the heart because we can't see into the heart. However, James is telling us, or Jesus, I should say, uh, is telling us that whatever is filled the heart will eventually overflow from their mouth in the form of words, which will expose the true condition of a person's heart. Turn to Matthew 15. Of course, you remember the context, the uh, Pharisees, who were all about outward rituals and uh, things, their religion was based on outward things, keeping the law, uh, ceremonies, rituals, and so on. And they were upset because Jesus' disciples ate without going through the whole um, ceremonial procedure of hand washing before they ate. Now, it didn't mean they were eating with dirty hands. They were just not ceremonially washed. They had a whole procedure, okay, of how they washed their hands before they ate the Pharisees. And so Jesus, you know, he... Uh, he just knocks that whole idea down. And uh, it says in verse 10, Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. He said, listen. He said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Verse 17, Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Again, 
defilement starts in the heart and then works its way out into your life. That, that's the idea, okay? You know, the problem, especially today, is that most people in our society, and unfortunately a good number in the church, are treating their hearts kind of like a cesspool. They're dumping into their hearts all kinds of polluted, filthy things. Yeah, obviously we think of pornography, and that's become a real epidemic because of the, uh, uh, the ease of, of which you can look at the stuff now, you know? So, yeah, that's the obvious one. But to a lesser degree, there are people who are filling their, their minds and their hearts with defiling things, uh, even watching TV. I mean, uh, a lot of these uh, sitcoms today, their whole idea is to get you to laugh at evil, laugh at sin. The idea is the devil's no fool. If he can get you to laugh at evil, he can bring down your, your opposition to, to evil and make you more tolerant of these things. So you laugh at immorality, laugh at adultery. Uh, pretty soon, you know, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Doesn't God want us happy, as we talked about Sunday and so on. So if you're not happy with the spouse you got, find somebody else and that kind of thing. Um, but we see it in, in TV shows. We see it in movies. Uh, young people. I mean, the stuff they're filling their minds and their hearts with, uh, with the music they're listening to, is just incredible. And, uh, but yet they don't see it, do they, many of them? You know, when, when our folks go out witnessing, I know a lot of them use the Ray Comfort approach, as I do when I go out witnessing. And, uh, you know, if, if you should die tonight and you stood before God, would God let you into heaven or not? Well, I believe he'd let me into heaven. Well, why? Because I'm a good person. See, Proverbs 20, verse 6 says pretty much everybody thinks they're a good person. They don't even see how defiled their heart really is. Why is that? Because Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Nobody really knows their own heart. God sees the heart. God knows what's in the heart. But people get jaded. They look at stuff. They listen to stuff so much, it's no longer evil, if they ever thought it was evil. And they just fill their mind. What they don't realize is, though, it's coming into their minds, and eventually it's working its way down into their heart. Remember, we talked about this, okay? All conviction starts with an idea that you look at, listen to. It enters into your mind as a thought, an idea. But if you internalize it, if you really buy into it, you bring it down into your heart where it becomes a conviction. That's when it becomes serious. It's not just a thought that you may agree with. Now it's a conviction that you're willing to fight for. And, and, and people don't realize that, you know. But when Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, listen, he was giving us a little self-examination test to help us look for symptoms by which we might gauge the spiritual health of our hearts. I've talked about this before, so if you heard me talk about it, bear with me. When you go to a doctor for a physical, what is probably the first thing he or she says to you? Open up your mouth and say, ah, okay. Why do they do that? Well, you know, I'm not a doctor. I would imagine that they're, they're looking for things inside your throat and all. And maybe, you know, by looking at your tongue or inside of your throat, uh, maybe they can spot some symptoms that may indicate the presence of a serious disease. In essence, guys, the great physician, Jesus Christ, is applying this principle spiritually. He's telling us that the tongue will reveal what's going on inside the heart and therefore what condition the heart is in. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Can't see the heart, can't see into the heart, but what comes out of the, uh, the mouth 
gives us an idea of what's really going on inside of our heart. First of all, I just want to say this one more time. Don't ever underestimate the power of the spoken word. Uh, Warren Worsby said something that I've, I wrote down because I've, I really believe it's a powerful statement. He said, and I quote, A judge speaks some words and a guilty prisoner is taken to a cell on death row. A gossip makes a phone call and a reputation is blemished or perhaps ruined. A cynical professor makes a snide remark in a lecture and a student's faith is destroyed. Never underestimate the power of words. For every word in Hitler's book, Mein Kampf, 125 people died in World War II. Solomon was right. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18, 21. No wonder James compared the tongue to a destroying fire, a dangerous beast, and a deadly poison. Speech is a matter of life or death, end quote. Look, when James likened the tongue to a destroying fire, a dangerous beast, and a deadly poison, as we're going to see in this chapter, he wasn't implying, listen, he wasn't implying that the tongue acts alone in its destructive dirty work. As we study other passages of Scripture, we discover that the tongue is really only one member in a trio that work together in harnessing the destructive power of the spoken word. Let me use a gun, if I can do that, as an illustration of this. When we're talking about a gun. It isn't the gun that does the killing. It's the bullet, right? It's the bullet that actually does the killing. The gun is what fires the bullet, and the hand of the gunman is what pulls the trigger on the gun. Each plays a vital role, right? Each plays a vital role in the injury and or death of another, without any one of which the victim you know, wouldn't be hurt. All three have to be working together to cause harm. The same is true with um, the injury done to another through our words. The words actually do the harm. The tongue is what fires off the words, and the heart is what pulls the trigger on the tongue. But interestingly, the, the heart also provides the ammunition because out of the heart come hatred, bitterness, unforgiveness, revenge. All these uh, emotions then are then attached to words which are fired out of our mouths at people. This is what causes great harm and damage in people's lives. You know, we, we all uh, remember the uh, <laughs> adage growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Our parents taught us that, didn't they? You know, when somebody's picking on you at school, calling you names, I remember my mom or dad telling me, you know, son, just go over there. Next time they call you a name, just say to them, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Have you ever tried that when you were a kid, eight years old, whatever? I have. Let me just tell you something. It didn't work. It didn't really work. Um, didn't stop the pain of those unkind words. And as I've gotten older, I've reflected on why uh, that didn't work. I mean, I, you know, years ago I reflected on it, not today. I understand today. But you get a little older, you say, well, why, you know, why didn't that work? It didn't work because it wasn't true. Our parents meant well, okay. It just wasn't true. Look, sticks and stones can break a bone or two. But usually those wounds will heal without any lasting consequences. But an unkind word spoken in a moment of anger can lodge in a person's heart and continue to cause harm for the rest of that person's life. I remember a famous, um, he's a well-known Christian speaker, and he was saying that a woman called him and asked if she could meet with him for some counseling. So he set up an appointment in his office, and she comes walking in, and he says, you know, I was taken back by this woman's beauty. She was a gorgeous woman. But when she sat down, 
She was a woman racked with feelings of, of insecurity, and uh, she just didn't think anything of herself. She was just beaten down, kind of a, of a gal, just down on herself, and just, you know, and he began to probe a little bit and found out when she was young, she had um, a nearsighted condition, which caused her to have to wear thick glasses. Uh, she had uh, acne, okay, pretty badly, and uh, she had buck teeth. So all the kids called her names, brutal names. You know, you're ugly, you're this, you're that. Well, what happened? Well, she grew up, and the acne cleared up. She got contacts, which corrected her vision, and um, she got braces, and her teeth were fixed. So when this pastor saw her, she was absolutely beautiful. But the hurtful words that were spoken to her when she was a child never left her. They were still working in her heart, destroying her image of herself. That's why the psalmist prayed in Psalm 64, verses 2 and 3. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of, wor of the workers of iniquity, listen, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows bitter words. The psalmist is saying, guys, that bitter, hateful words are like arrows that once set to flight cannot be recalled, and once they lodge in a person's heart can continue to do damage for many years to come. Again, Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Listen, and those who love it will eat its fruit. What does that mean? There's a lot of people who don't realize the power of the spoken word. They love to shoot their mouths off. They, they love to talk. They love to gossip. They love to do all kinds of things uh, in the, with their speech. What the writer of the Proverbs is saying is that the tongue, it has the power of life and death in it. And those who love to use their tongues, use, love to shoot their mouths off, they're going to eat the fruit of their words. You know, obviously, if you're the kind of person who is always speaking kind words, encouraging words into people's lives, well, you're going to eat the fruit of that. It's going to be wonderful. People are going to love you. They're going to thank you. They're going to look up to you as somebody who has really been a mentor or a helper for them. But if you're the kind of person who constantly rips people apart, talks against them, puts them down, well, you're going to wind up eating that fruit, and eventually you're not going to have anybody who loves you, who cares about you. You're going to drive everybody away. I've seen it. That's why, again, the writer of the Proverbs says in Proverbs 12, verse 18, some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. And that's why the psalmist prayed in Psalm 141, verse 3, Take control of what I say, O Lord, and guard my lips. You ever prayed that prayer? I have. Lord, put a guard over the door of my mouth. Lord, I don't want to say anything that you... I want to say everything you want me to say. And nothing you don't want me to say, you know. So, Lord, please give me grace to control my mouth, all right? Guys, the tongue has done a lot of damage. It can and has done a lot of damage in other people's lives. But again, Jesus already told us the real problem is the heart. Because that's where these things come from, right? And so, again, James is saying that a mature Christian has learned to control, or the word he uses is bridle, their tongue. Uh, the implication being, of course that uh, they are keeping their heart pure by walking in the Spirit and filling their hearts with God's Word continually. I mean, how can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your Word. 
I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? This is what we need to understand. If you fill your mind and your heart with God's word, it pushes out the junk that the devil's put in there. If you don't, what will happen is every day the devil's pouring into us through our eyes and ears garbage. And what will happen is if you're not counteracting that with the word of God, feeding on it, reading it, studying it, and so on, eventually the negativity of the world and the world's ideas will begin to take root and you'll begin to speak and think and uh, even do what the world does. Very important that we understand that. So again, verse 1, he said, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. As one author said, The teacher begets others in his own image. He makes them like himself. If he dilutes or explains away the clear meaning of Scripture, of any Scripture, he hinders the growth of his students. If he condones sin in any form, he fosters lives of unholiness. No other book makes such claims on its readers as, as the New Testament. It calls for total commitment to Jesus Christ. It insists that he must be the Lord of every phase of the believer's life. It is a serious matter to teach from such a book, end quote. And another adds, It is easy to take the position of a teacher lightly in the church without considering its cost in terms of accountability. Jesus warned, to whom much is given from him or her, much will be required. And to whom much have been committed of him, they will ask the more. End quote. You know, a teacher of God's word uh, is really a spokesman for God. Think about that. A teacher of God's word is really a spokesman for God. In the broadest sense of the term, guys, they are acting as a prophet. The word prophet simply means a spokesman for God. So when anyone, and even when you witness to somebody, you are speaking on behalf of God. But James is focusing primarily on preachers, teachers, and so on. And he is saying that, look, when you, you know, you, a lot of people want to rush into the teaching ministry. What a great thing to be able to stand up in front of people and teach. Um, well, it is an awesome privilege. But James says you better not run into that ministry too quickly, all right? Because it carries with it a great responsibility. You are a spokesman for God. And as such, if you're going to speak on behalf of God, you better know what you're talking about. In the Old Testament, God made this very clear uh, in Ezekiel chapter 3. Why don't you turn there? This little passage ought to send chills up and down any teacher or preacher's spine. Ezekiel 3, starting with verse 17. God said, Son of man, talking to Ezekiel, I have appointed you as a watchman on the wall or as a watchman for Israel. Whenever you receive a message from me, warn people immediately. If I warn the wicked saying you are under the penalty of death or your or judgment is, is coming upon your life, but you fail to deliver the warning, they will die in their sins. Uh, and I will hold you responsible for their deaths. If you warn them, and they refuse to repent and keep on sinning, they will die in their sins. But you will have saved yourself because you obeyed me. Now, I believe this is what Paul the Apostle had in mind, this very passage, when he said in Acts chapter 20, about how he had not shunned to declare unto them the whole counsel of God. Everything God said, Paul said, I've declared to you, my conscience is clear. 
I am free of the blood of all men, Paul said. This idea of judgment, guys, let's look at this for a second. The judgment that James is referring to in verse 1 really has a twofold application. For false teachers like the scribes, Pharisees, even today, those in the church who are teaching uh, false doctrine, the future tense will incur, right, the more strict judgment, will incur refers to the great white throne judgment uh, spoken of by John in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. We know that um, all unbelievers are going to stand before Jesus Christ someday at the great white throne judgment. Now, they think it's going to be their day in court and they're going to plead their case and, and convince the Lord they were pretty good people and get off, and, but that's not what's going to happen. They've already been pronounced guilty. That's just the sentencing phase. The great white throne just determines the severity of their punishment in hell. Everybody who appears before the Lord at the great white throne judgment is only for unbelievers. Every one of them is cast into the lake of fire. And that will include false prophets, teachers, pastors, and so on, who I think are going to incur some of the, some of the most severe penalty in hell because they were messing with people's eternity. Messing with people's eternity. But for the Christians who teach false doctrine, let me just, hear me out. There are believers who teach things that are not accurate. I'm not talking about essential doctrine. I'm talking about how, you know, there are good teachers who disagree in the timing of the rapture. Well, we're pre-trip. Well, we're post-trip. That's not what we're talking about. There, there are good pastors and teachers who disagree on whether or not the gifts of the Spirit are still for today, like the gift of tongues. That's not what I'm talking about. Those are interpretations on non-essential doctrines. People try to do their best to come up with what they believe the Bible is teaching on this subject. God doesn't hold that against them. When they stand before Jesus to receive the rewards, or when, they, when they're raptured to heaven before the tribulation period begins, then they're going to know I was right. So, But it's not important, right? We don't use that as a basis for dividing you know, against each other. Uh, but there are those pastors and teachers, professors and Christians now, who have you know, kind of capitulated to the culture and teach that things like homosexuality and gay marriage are not wrong. They're not wrong. There's a lot of Christian pastors who know the Lord, who have capitulated to the culture in, in an effort to reach the culture. They've, they've softened what God has clearly said on certain topics, like homosexuality. And they're going to incur judgment. What does that mean? Well, they're going to incur judgment in this life in the form of, of a chastisement, but also when they stand before Jesus, not the great white throne judgment, that's just for unbelievers, but the bema seat of Christ, where the rewards are passed out, they will incur judgment because they will lose rewards that they could have had because they were not faithful in teaching what the Bible clearly taught on an important subject. And so when they have to give an account, and we're all going to have to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ as believers and give an account of our time on the earth, our ministries. They read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, also Romans chapter 14, verse 12, Hebrews 4, verse 13. I'll just quote that one to you. All things are open and naked in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account, right? Nothing is hidden from his sight. So when you're talking about false teachers and preachers, and there's a lot of phonies out there, right? And they're just really in it to make money and to make merchandise 
uh, from you, Peter, in that passage, we didn't read verse 3, 2 Peter 2, verse 3, talks about how these uh, people will try to separate you, these false teachers. It's always about money, how they will cook up these weird things to, to get you to support their ministries. Um, but Peter says, look, their, their judgment is coming. Their judgment is coming. But once again, now in James 3, so, you know, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many things. Let me stop there. We all stumble in many things. The word stumble is a Greek word that refers to any moral failing that trips us up and hinders our spiritual progress. James said, we all stumble in many things. Or as we would say today, we've all blown it in many ways. None of us are perfect. Or as John put it in his first epistle, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. So we all know that. And James is simply making the point, guys, look, when I talk about maturity, that's really what he's driving home, this, wanting them to be mature. When I talk about maturity, I'm not saying, talking about perfection. None of us are perfect. We all blow it, right? However, he continues, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able to also bridle the whole body. The word translated perfect, the Greek word teleos, can either mean absolutely perfect in the sense of sinless, or it could mean complete or mature, depending on the context. And I think it's pretty obvious that James has in mind Christian maturity when he says that even though none of us is perfect, sinless, anyone who has learned to control their tongue is definitely a mature Christian, is the idea. But not only that, he goes on to say, a person like that, if they can control their own tongue by the grace of God, don't get me wrong, it's only by the grace of God, all right, that we can live for Jesus. But what James is saying is, if a person is mature enough to control their own tongue by the grace of God, well, then they can control any other area of their life because the tongue is the toughest opponent we face in our Christian life. If you can nail that down, James, if you can really have victory over your tongue, wow. You are a mature believer. And nothing else in the Christian life should be hard for you by God's grace to overcome. Because the tongue, greatest enemy we face. One pastor had this to say. He said, and I quote, If anyone does not stumble in a word, he is a perfect man, quoting James. To not stumble in a word shows true spiritual maturity. This is especially relevant to teachers who have so much more opportunity to sin with their tongue. We stumble in word about ourselves with our boasting, exaggeration, and selective reporting. And we stumble in word about others with our criticism, gossip, slander, cruelty, two-facedness, and anger, anger, or with flattery and, uh, and insincere words meant to gain favor, end quote. All right, guys, in order to uh, impress on us the importance of controlling what comes out of our mouths, James goes on to give six illustrations of the tongue. He likens it to a bit, a rudder, fire, a poisonous animal like a serpent, a fountain, and a fig tree. As we're going to see, all of these illustrations work together to paint a picture in our minds, listen, of the benefits of the tongue when it's used wisely and properly, but also of the devastation that results when we use our tongues haphazardly or carelessly. Again, life and death is in the power of the tongue. 
Our tongue has the ability, our mouth has the ability to do great good in people's lives. It also has the, the, the ability to do great damage. And we have to learn how to harness it because God wants us to use our words to build up, to encourage. The devil wants us to use our tongues to tear down, destroy, bring division, uh, discord into the body. Because if he does that, he can defeat the church. He can, he can tear a church apart, really. And I can't tell you how many churches have been torn apart through gossip, slander, uh, lies, stories that were not even true, but people bought into them thinking they were true, and so on. Okay, I told you years ago, I think it was, a pastor told this to us at a conference. And uh, he had a young couple in his church, or they, actually he knew this young couple uh, in another church, and um, they started working with the youth in this church. Well, they were very gifted, obviously called to youth ministry because the youth ministry just, it blossomed. In fact, it exploded. All kinds of kids were coming. It was incredible. These, this young couple, they really had a way with the young people, okay? And they were really being used mightily by God. Then one day an accusation came uh, that one of the elders saw this the guy walking into a movie theater that uh, showed pornographic movies. And he began to talk to different people in the church. And this began to circulate without even talking to the, the guy or the couple. Uh, and all of a sudden, people started to act differently towards this couple. Uh, they stopped sending their kids to the youth group. And uh, finally, they went to the leader and said, we don't know what's going on. All the kids have stopped coming. And the elder who started the whole thing said, well, I'll tell you what's going on. I saw you walk into that theater a few weeks back, that place that we know that shows pornographic junk, and I saw you walking in there. What do you have to say for yourself? And he said, what? He started thinking about it. He said, I never go to those kind of movies. He said, wait a minute. He said, was it about three or four weeks? Yes. That was the day I got a flat tire, and in the lobby there was a phone, and I went to use the phone to call a tow truck. And that was all that was to that. I never saw a movie. I just quickly used the phone and left. If they had gone to this guy, sat this couple down maybe, and talked to them about this, of course, after it came out that it was a big misunderstanding, um, you know how the damage is done? They eventually had to leave the church because there's always people that think, well, no, no, he really did go see those, that movie or whatever. And so their reputation was destroyed, and they had to wind up leaving the church. And a, and a church lost a good ministry couple that was ministering to the kids. We have to be very careful, you know. We maybe don't mean to hurt someone, but we grab onto a juicy little story, and all of a sudden it's true. We never have talked to the person, never have heard their side, and we start passing it around, and lives are destroyed, and church is ripped apart. So... That serves as kind of like the introduction to the rest of chapter 3, which we will uh, look at in a couple of weeks. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. And Lord, it's only your grace and strength that can give us the ability to bridle our tongues, that we don't engage in gossip, slander, passing along lies that we think are the truth, but we've never really uh, checked it out. And Lord, give us grace to understand the power of, in the spoken word, that we might use our, our words to build up, to edify, to encourage, not to tear down and destroy. 
So, Father, we ask that you would continue to bless these studies in the book of James for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.